I never had an ideologically or theologically rigid education in anything, not in Christianity, not in Judaism. When I went to grad school in religious studies, I was taking classes with really open-minded people. That's not to say they didn't have beliefs uh, and convictions. They often did, but they were really open-minded. The other thing I would say is that I always, I've always believed this, and I continue to, that religion has to be treated as one of those... Um, Look, even if God's real, we can agree that religion is a human invention, yeah. right? So you, you can you can be a, a believer and still say that the 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 structuring of how people live their religious lives on Earth is a human project, except not a for Presbyterians. Right. Go ahead. Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones, and Bill Bohr is unfortunately in an undisclosed location, but we'll return back to the show shortly. But today we have a special guest. I was privileged to sit down and interview someone with my friend Greg Strawbridge. Uh, and we have a special guest announcer to announce our special guest. Today on the show we have talented, amazing guest Mark Oppenheimer from Tablet Magazine. Featured in the podcast Unorthodox. And now in New Persuasive. Dr. Mark Oppenheimer. Mr. Mr. Oppenheimer. Uh, Mr. Oppenheimer. By the way, that name kind of freaks me out. Growing up in the Cold War era, like Oppenheimer sounds like yeah. a nuclear bomb to me. I know. I know. Well, it's an interesting test for people to see if they've ever heard of him. You know, to some people, that's the first thing they think of. And others, you know, Oppenheimer may as well be Mills. I bet chicks dig it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that it's ever helped me or hurt me with it's subjects. Helpful. It's helpful. Well, Mark is the uh, host and uh, main voice, I think, in the Unorthodox podcast, which is just brilliant. Very fun podcast. And so you're you're a Reformed evangelical, and you, you listen to our podcast. I do. That's really good I news. I only listen to it That's great news. only because my liberal leftist friend recommended it. I'm an evangelist for your podcast. I have my Thank uh, my, you. my in-laws are conservative evangelicals. I've got them listening to it. Uh, my wife and I listen to it all the time. Um, it's I, and it, what, this is one of the things that's interesting. There's like zero religious podcasts, probably that actually have a listenership outside of their own adherents. And it sounds like you have a huge following that is not Jewish. How did you accomplish we that? Seem, that's a that is amazing. I don't know. Well, I don't. You know, we don't. We don't. When people download on iTunes or off of our website. Um, which is tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. So you know, people should go download it. Um, but or they, they should go to iTunes and search for unorthodox and we have, we're the bright orange button. Um, you know, we don't, uh, unlike many podcasts, we don't ask them to fill out a questionnaire about their race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation before they download, before they click download the way like, you know, this American life does. And so um, I'm kidding. <laughs> and... <laughs> You guys will think anything of, of liberal NPR listeners, won't you? So, the, <laughs> yeah, it's like when Leo Leibowitz says that uh, oh, the worst thing that can happen to a paranoid is you find someone's really following you. <laughs> it's true. No, it's true. Um, so uh, we don't know how many of them are Gentiles. I mean, a lot, it seems, which I think is terrific. And, uh, you know, our vision was let's invite the world into what an editorial meeting at a Jewish publication sounds like where we talk fearlessly and I think authentically, hopefully intelligently as Jews amongst other Jews. But to us, that's only an interesting conversation if non-Jews uh, contribute and listen and all of that. And I think it's worked. I think it's been, and it's immense fun. I mean, it was my idea that we had to have a Gentile of the week. And initially some of, my, great idea. some of my colleagues were skeptical. I had, I, I'm, 
people I worked with, uh, let's just say, were skeptical that that was a good idea. I said, no, 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 that will be a great segment. And it's been amazing. I mean, sometimes it's a little it's a little weird, you know. Al Mohler um, and Dan Savage. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, that that's that, pretty amazing. Yeah, that's the greatest thing in the universe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, Dan, I've written about. I know Dan, so I knew, you know, I, I hoped he would say yes, and he did. And he's he's a great and wonderful person, just a kind, immensely kind and generous person. And Al too is a very kind and generous person. Um, pretty different from Dan Savage in a lot of ways. I think <laughs> Al, in a lot of ways. Like, what if we just tried to list some? Just kidding. <laughs> in a lot right. of ways, that's an understatement of the year. It's a, it's a pretty big understatement. I think that the Al episode was interesting because, um, you know, on our show, most of what we say is is in the spirit of, of, of humor and joking, often at our own expense. And I don't think that's quite Al's style. I mean, um, he's he's a pretty earnest guy. And so I think there was a kind of mismatch of wave. I'm not sure he got on our Jewish wavelength. But you guys did great um, with that. I felt like. Did we? Was uh, that a good episode? I felt like that was, that was one of my favorites because I felt like on lots of levels, um, the way you interacted with him like was humorous, but also sincere. So, I mean, you were you and he was himself. And the best part of that was that <laughs> we well, would you a when you asked if there was a door prize in heaven for the Baptist converts the most Jews, and then when Leo is like, you know, it's just like a cardiologist the recommendation. He's like, you're gonna they're gonna be using that in the conversion classes now. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was the utter brilliance of that. It was amazing. And the ET. Reference. I mean, I, you know, I think that. Um... Yeah, I was a, I was a wonderful guest, and uh, I'd love to have him back. I'd love to talk more with him. We got we got first of all, most of our mail is 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 supportive. Like we actually, interestingly, we get a lot of supportive letters. I think most mail that most public figures or media personalities get is hostile, and uh, just just as most callers to talk radio are angry, and we actually get tons of supportive mail from people congratulating us on good episodes. So that was true of Al Mohler's episode as well, and but we did get a few angry letters. I mean, I mean, five or something. And from people who said, how dare you give a platform to that homophobic, you know, such and such. And, um, you know, we don't care. I mean, we were eager to hear Al's point of view. And we, uh, you know, people want to come on our show in a spirit of good faith and, and, you know, openly, mutually generous encounter. We will have anybody. I mean, I, I really would have a Nazi on my show if he was polite to me and willing to listen to us and we listen to him. And I think that'd be great. Radio. <laughs> yeah. So, you're someone, and and by the way, I don't mean to yoke. I mean Al's not. No, th- that was that's only to sort of take an extreme example and say I'd have anyone. So Al's a, Al, who is a a, a generous spirited person and uh, thoughtful and a good listener and very smart, is was a complete no brainer for us. Even though I think the three of us disagree with him in numerous ways. You know, chief among them, we don't think you know Jesus was the Messiah. So you, uh, like your byline on your website is you're the. Um, only living writer to con- to have contributed to both the Christian century and Playboy, or at least you thought you were. Um, right. That seems like a very ecumenical identity. Uh, and it just, <laughs> you seem like, uh, I feel like one of the things that plagues our culture is tribalism, like people that only hang out with their tribe. And you seem to have a pretty non-tribal identity. How does one become so, like a kind of eclectic, uh, you know, broadcaster, writer, like sure. Oppenheimer. What's well, the I, formative thing? I, 
I mean, I should say that I grew up knowing very little about religion, including my own. You know, my parents are fairly secular Jews, and I did not have a, a Jewish education. I didn't go to Hebrew school. I didn't become a bar mitzvah. So a lot of the Judaism I knew I picked up in, in self-study and, and out of my own curiosity, mostly in college and beyond. And then Christianity I picked up from an amazing class in college taught by a professor named Harry Stout, who wrote the great biography of the evangelist George Whitfield, the Puritan era evangelist. And, uh, you know, Harry, or he's known as Skip. Skip Stout is a wonderful teacher, great guy, brilliant lecturer. And also it comes from an evangelical background, but, but speaks to people well beyond the evangelical world. So I never had an ideologically or theologically rigid education in anything, not in Christianity, not in Judaism. When I went to grad school in religious studies, I was taking classes with really open-minded people. That's not to say they didn't have beliefs uh, and convictions. They often did, but they were really open-minded. The other thing I would say is that I always, I've always believed this and I continue to, that religion has to be treated as one of those, um, Look, even if God's real, we can agree that religion is a human invention, yeah. right? So you, you can you can be a, a believer and still say that the 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 structuring of how people live their religious lives on Earth is a human project, except not a for Presbyterians. Right? Go ahead. Really, do Presbyterians believe that God ordained like First Presbyterian <laughs> well, Church? Well, sometimes, on the corner? yeah, some some hardcore guy. <laughs> right. Well, one of my favorite theologians, Paul you know, Zoll, said that like he he basically says he's Episcopalian, says the same thing you just said. And he talks about the problem of like religious institutions. He said one time a Presbyterian said to me that Presbyterianism is the biblical form of church government. And he says, well, what example would you give? Well, the Sanhedrin. It's right there. He's like, they didn't always have the best moments. <laughs> no, that's good luck to them if they want to base on the Sanhedrin. Yeah. Um, the Sanhedrin, of course, had 70, 71 judges. I mean, that doesn't even seem to, to make sense. But OK. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, they've probably read their their Torah as well as most, you know, as well as most evangelicals have read their Torah. The, yeah, I remember when I wrote about the left. Remember the Left Behind novels? Remember the moment when everyone Kirk was Cameron, baby. those? And Kirk Cameron, right. I still think of him as Mike Seaver from Growing Pains. But I know that for some Americans, he's, he's the guy in the Left Behind movies. And, you know, there was I remember reading about or writing about, I can't remember, uh, those books. And you know, somebody I was reading pointed out that in the Left Behind novels, the River Jordan is this like mile wide. It's like the Potomac. It's this massive, majestic, you know, biblical, so to speak, river, flowing river. And of course, the real River Jordan is this tiny little trickle of a thing. Right. <laughs> it was it was as if like it made you wonder, has Tim LaHaye ever been to Israel at all? They, they transposed the Mississippi it? River. Yeah, I made it through yes, exactly. half one of those books and like it made I thought I don't believe in the rapture. But the problem is, if I did, I would want to be left behind. Who wants to go to heaven where you could fight the Antichrist? Like, the tribulation Wait, but you was. should know you should know this, Mark, because I have a close friend that's worked as a producer with Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron no longer believes in that. He no longer believes. Is that yeah, right? He, he's become, you know, if you know what the term postmillennial is, the idea that the king. Yeah, sure. Go, right. He's postmillennial. Now. Yeah. As, is he still a Christian? He's still a Christian, he's t and he's committed to sort of a, a different point of view. It's been fascinating. He's put, put been putting out all these movies that address yeah. uh, bigger themes. So uh, anyway, back right. to you. Yeah. Anyway, to you. so um, if we can take for granted, Presbyterianism aside, that at least religious structures are a human invention, it seems to me you have to, to write about and think about the world of religion the way we think about other enduring and grand human creations, the market, governments, uh, sports, things like that which means that often they're, you know, overseen or perpetuated by terrible people 
uh, sometimes great people, but often terrible people, certainly fallible people. They don't endure forever. They come, they go, they rise, they fall. Some of them last a lot longer. Um, if you look at governments, you know, America is only a few hundred years old and, you know, Rome, Rome lasted five or 600 years, but, and, and then it declined and it seemed eternal in its day too. And, you know, um, religions have risen and fallen. So to me, it always made sense to approach the writing about religion and co journalistic coverage of the religion world as if you were writing about something that was played out by human actors uh, who often were, were crazy and self-destructive. And um, I, I try to cover the religion beat the way that a sports journalist covers the sports beat, which is to say, I'm a fan. I love it. I encounter many people whom I adore. But if somebody's, uh, you know, doping before the Tour de France, you have to write about that too. Yeah. What was your big break for writing? Um, I mean, there've been a few. I got, I would say a lot of it flowed from a piece I wrote for Slate in the first year that Slate existed, when it was still printing out its best articles every week, stapling them and mailing them to people because not everyone read stuff on the internet. Um, this was 97, maybe. And I wrote a piece about evangelical sex manuals. I actually wrote about Beverly LaHaye and some other uh, evangelicals who had written books about, about good sex. Um, not a terribly interesting topic, but it hadn't been covered so much at the time. This and, is when you're you know, at about the same time you're writing for Playboy? Yeah, I also wrote a piece for Playboy that year about you know, women of the Ivy League, sex at the in the Ivy League that that I lucked into because they needed someone on a college campus, on an Ivy League college campus to write, and I was, I just returned to Yale for graduate school. Do you just felt? So did you feel like okay, my life will never get better than this? Like, or were you like an optimistic guy? Like, okay, it's bigger. I will tell you that when I'm an optimist by nature, so I I tend to feel like life gets better every year, and it more or less has actually. Um, which has been great. Post millennial. I, I'm a really. I, it's true. It's true. well, and you know, I mean, they're they're. I don't know. Do Jews map onto the post millennial? I mean, we don't think the Messiah's arrived even once. So, um, and when he comes, it'll only be once. And so, it's um, you know, we, we do live in a state of sort of heightened expectation that next year could be the really terrific year. Um, next year in Jerusalem. And, but right? next year in Jerusalem, exactly. Um, so always, you know, always keep your chin up. Uh, when Playboy cut me a check for $6,000 and I was 22 or 23 years old, that was certainly more money than I'd ever nice. seen. And that, I'm not sure that any check has ever, and there have been very few checks of, of that amount <laughs> to this day. But even when I've gotten checks of that amount or a bit more, they've never felt quite as good. My stipend as a doctoral student that year was $13,000. And then Playboy gave me six more. So I got to go to the movies, which was, you know, and, and eat out once in a Do while. Do you ever just so say to your wife, great. like, hey, you know, just remember, as you're taking out the garbage, I'm the guy that, you know, Playboy hired at 21. I mean, that's just the greatest thing ever. <laughs> My wife and I do have this joke. She's, her parents are people who are like really intense warriors. You know, they, they, they arrive half an hour early for everything. If there's snow on the horizon in the next week, they, they just, they buy 10 gallons of milk and hunker down. They're really intense warriors. And my parents um, tend to feel like, eh, it'll all work out. And I definitely am... A product of my parents and she's a product of hers. And so I do tend to have this feeling, you know, if, if I get fired for a job or a piece that I've written gets killed and I don't get paid or something bad happens, I say, well, yeah, but you know, it'll, it'll get better. And then she says, well, how do you know? How do you know? And we do have this joke that actually for me, it always does. I mean, something always comes through. And so when she's getting really down, I'll say, babe, you're an Oppenheimer now. Like you married me. It's you, you, you stepped into my sunshine. So it's all good. <laughs> and I haven't, re I haven't really persuaded her of that yet, but I think she's, she's coming around. <laughs> Is that like a minority temperamentally, like, like at your synagogue? Like, I, mean, I always think, like, I think that like 
10% of people in any given religious community are kind of upbeat and true believers. 10% are perennial kind of cynics. And the 80% is just in the middle. We're up, you're down. Are you like in that, like, but Leo Leibowitz actually asked you the other day if you believe in God and you were kind of, ah, not really, but yet you're really upbeat and optimistic. I mean, how does that all coalesce? Well, first of all, first of all, I mean, I think that some of the most upbeat and optimistic people are atheists or secular humanists because they, like, this is the only life they've got. And if you, if you really think this is the only life you've, I mean, it's, it's like people who have survived a brush with cancer. They really value every day because they don't think this is prep time for the big eternal afterlife. So they really savor, um, every single moment. And so I know some incredibly upbeat, um, but very committed atheists. And I, I think that's, um, that's something not all, that not all Christians understand, right? Um, they also tend to often be very proactive about improving their own conditions because, you know, they're, they're going to join the labor union because they've only got 80 years on this in, at all total. And so they don't get to say, well, you know, I'll just pay my dues and then get the afterlife. Right. Um, so, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, no, I don't think of it. I, I'm just temperamentally, I think I just got good chemistry. I'm just temperamentally an optimist. And I've always, I even sort of color in the past when I was miserable and convinced myself that those were the good old days. <laughs> so you have like, I mean, you have retroactive hope. I do. I'm, I mean, there's a way in which if you're a depressed person, I'm really insufferable to be around because I'm not high on the, I'm not filled with compassion. I don't really understand it. Um, I'm just, I'm a very temperamentally up person, which is, which is a blessing though. It is definitely, I think it's, it can be a, a problem for my art as a writer and it can be a problem uh, for my capacity for empathy because I really haven't, not much bad has happened to me and the bad stuff that's happened to me, I've been very resilient. So that's, but that's a gift. Yeah. That's not anything I've earned. You've become a good writer. How did you do that without pain and suffering? I mean, most artists have to go through just hell to get to the place where they're good art. You know, they do good art. Well, I'd be better if I'd had more hell. I mean, if you look at some of the great, I, the, the, look, I've, there's a few things that I'm, I'm happy to say I'm good at. I have a good ear. You know, my sentences have good rhythm. I don't, um, I'm pretty resistant to cliches. I tend to spot them in my own writing and, and kind of squ squash them like, like little interloping bugs. Um, and, um, you know, and I think I have a kind of, I work hard enough and research enough that I achieve a certain clarity of what I'm trying to say. And, and, you know, most of any art is hard work, right? But if you look at some of the real nonfiction masters who are our contemporaries, one of you said you were 20 or 41 like me, which would you is that? Uh, that was me. I'm 41. Yeah, okay. I'm, so 51, I'm 41, right? Actually. Okay. So, but if you look at people of our general, you know, midlife period, if you look at some of the nonfiction masters, like my friend David Samuels or John Jeremiah Sullivan, um, I think they have a much darker streak than, I mean, David, you know, David sees bleakness in the world that I'm not able to see. And, and if you read some of his best pieces, you know, you, you spot the bleakness in ways that I would not be able to so spot. Who do you connect with most as a writer? Like, I, like someone that like either, either present day or in the past that like, you're like, okay, this is kind of the sunny eyed, you know, bright eyed optimist that kind of still is deep and, and a good describer of reality. I mean, I don't know that there are always people who are temperamentally like me, but the people who are great nonfiction <clears throat> describers of reality, um, as I said, I like David Samuels. I like John Jeremiah Sullivan. I really like uh, Joan Acachella, who writes dance criticism for The New Yorker, but also writes l literary criticism um, and is, is just, I think, one of the most astonishing writers. I really love Janet Malcolm, uh, who's written wonderful books on everything from Gertrude Stein to psychoanalysis. I love the fiction of, um, of Evan Connell 
spelled Connell, but pronounced Connell, who wrote the great Bridge novels, Mr. Bridge and Mrs. Bridge, which were made into the last movie that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward made together called Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. I love Bernard Malamud, who's a very bleak, you know, the great Jewish short story writer whose stuff is very mournful and very uh, bleak. I mean, I think that if there's a common thread, it's people who write pretty simple declarative sentences who aren't overly fancy, um, kind of who do a lot with a little, almost in a poetic way. Um, Because I'm not I'm not a Baroque or ornamental kind of writer. And that's not the stuff I like in what I read. Well, speaking of what you uh, write, the Zen predator of the Upper East Side. I I found that as an intriguing story. You found a lot of very interesting stories about the intersection of religion and various things, religion and sex. And and sex deviancy, (laughs) religion and religion, sexual harassers, rapists, uh, general perverts. Yeah, these stories are all kind of out there. I mean, I found I first learned about Edo Shimano, who was this, who is this Buddhist Roshi uh, teacher who has um, groped and harassed dozens of students over the years. It seems I first learned about him because there was a mention of him on a Buddhist uh, on the blog of the Buddhist magazine Tricycle. I think I think it was, and within the Buddhist community, it was a very open secret. So I just took it to the pages of the New York Times and then did a longer piece for The Atlantic. You know, this guy just wrote about Mark Gaffney, who's an ex-rabbi, who is now a ethics counselor, if you can believe it, to the CEO of Whole Foods, but has had enormous problems with how he's treated women, dozens of women, it seems. Let me take that back. <laughs> many women. I don't know. If that's <laughs> that's many. Not, yeah, many. Conservative uh, many. Uh, I mean, Mark Gaffney has been written about over the years in the Jewish press and, and the secular press, it's an, it's, it was an open secret and people just forgave him and l- allowed him to keep on keeping on. And so a lot of time, I'm not, I'm not the best person at finding totally hidden stories. I'm much better at finding stories that have kind of been written about a little, but that deserved more attention and then giving them a, a bigger platform. I like, I was very intrigued by your uh, article about Anthony flew mm-hmm. and the fine tuning argument, you know, here's yeah. this noted atheist, who's been, you know, a a very, very well-worn philosophical figure for the 20th century, yet he becomes a theist. Sure. I mean, that was that was a very painful story because what they did was was deeply unchristian, if I may say. I mean, I don't know about I don't know about any one of them in particular, but it was a community of people who took advantage of someone who was quite elderly and quite declined and um, wrote a book, you know, presented a book to him that he hadn't written. And then they had a ghostwriter write it. And then they had another ghostwriter rewrite it. And then they put it out under his name. And it was stuff that he didn't understand. And I flew to England and talked with him. And he had no idea what was in his own book. And then I called Harper, the publisher. And I said, are you aware that he has no idea what's in his own book? And they, they were in some sort of denial. Uh, and it was, um, they shouldn't have done it. It was immoral that they put that book out. Uh, it was... Um, it's hard to say whether the people who put out this book and put his name on it saying that he'd become an atheist or excuse me, become a, a believer knew that he didn't really know what he was saying. Maybe that maybe it was wishful thinking on their part. Maybe he nodded enough and said, Oh yes, yes, I agree enough. And they believed what they, it was, it's what they wanted to hear. And so they you believed You sound it. like literally James it was very You're like, okay, so I got in the plane to England and I went and I went, you're like, you're yeah. like a literary secret agent. But here's the thing. That was not rocket science. That was just reporting. I called Anthony Flew and I said, can I come visit you? And he said, sure. And I did. And I brought a copy of, of his forthcoming book and I read him passages. And I said, do you, you know, here you cite this particular Christian philosopher approvingly. 
what do you like about his arguments? And he, he would say, well, I've never heard of that man. Well, he's in your book, Anthony. Oh, well, maybe so. I don't, but I don't know who he is. And they put the, and Harper knew this. I told them this mm. and they put the book out anyway. Um, That's bad. and, um, it, it was, and then they issued a press release, you know, attacking me and, um, and, and saying that Anthony flew stood by his story, but Anthony flew, by the way, never showed up in public saying it. He didn't go on book tour and he didn't take any further interviews. Why? Well, he was growing senile and he died not so long. Uh, I don't remember how long thereafter, but it was, you know, he, the decline had begun. And um, the evangelical community has an enormous amount to answer for with, with that story. There's, mm-hmm. there's never been a reckoning where responsible evangelicals have said, we so badly wanted to say that this atheist had flipped that we, um, we told ourselves and the whole world a big lie. That's so interesting because, uh, like, for Jude- that's one of the things that's interesting, right, about Judaism versus most forms of Christianity. Like, evangelicals love a good convert. You know, there's this kind of thing where you, you, you don't, like, uh, in Judaism, that's not like, hey, we got Rod Carew. All right, one more for the team. You know, it's, like, accepted, but it's not, like, celebrated. Right. I mean, don't get us wrong. We like having Rod Carew. Uh, but um, Didn't Rod Carew bat over now, 400 one year? I think yeah. he did. I think he was the last person ever to do it. Uh, you know, I'm glad Natalie Portman's husband has uh, has joined her as a member of the tribe, reportedly. You know, we like having celebrity converts. We're human. But... Uh, you know, and there have been times in history, contrary to myth, when Jews have proselytized. And obviously, you know, the, the fact that we don't all look the same and, and don't all look Middle Eastern is a testament to the fact that as the nation traveled, you know, as the people traveled throughout the world over three millennia, they intermarried and brought people into the community. So conversion is, you know, is, a, is there's a strong tradition of it in Judaism, but it's not central to the faith. And in fact, theologically speaking, you're only a Jew if your mother is or reform Jews would say if your mother or father is. So, um, I mean, I always joke, you know, it's like, it's like the hotel account, hotel, California, you, you, you check know, out you anytime check out any you, like, time you like, but you can never leave, but you can never leave. Like you can't be an ex Jew and it's pretty hard to become one. This has its strengths, but it also has its tremendous weaknesses chief among them that we could disappear pretty quickly. I was in a, me- a, a meeting of a scriptural reasoning group, which is, you know, Christians, Jews, and Muslim scholars who dialogue around each other's sacred texts. And in one of those meetings, uh, I forget who, which scholar it was. It was a Jewish scholar, though, said, you know, we're the only team here that is not supersessionist. You know, like you got Christianity coming along mm-hmm. and saying, hey, we've got the fuller revelation. Then you got Islam coming along and saying, we've got the fuller revelation over both of you. But we didn't come along that way. We were like the original cut of the album. Do you think that shapes? How do you think that like non-supersessionist kind of thing, like we're not improving on the previous cut, shapes like the Jewish Jewish religious imagination. It's something every Jew knows. If you have any Jewish education, at some point or another, you learn. In fact, you learn a stronger version than the true one. You, you know, Jewish kids say tend to hear, you know, we don't believe in converting people or we've never sought converts. We've never evangelized. And that's that's not entirely true. Um, and in fact, of course, in biblical times, you know, we slaughtered peoples. If you believe the Old Testament, right? If you believe the Hebrew Bible, we were not averse to a good war against uh, pagans or infidels, right? So um, there, there was supersessionism, but it was pretty, it was left in the biblical era. You know, we also tend to believe, generally speaking, that God doesn't act in history anymore. So, um, or, or acts if he, if he does in deeply mysterious ways. So prayer is a, is a different thing. You know, it's much more about expressing gratitude and sort of wishing for things. Um, but, but highly specific prayers asking for particular favors to rain down upon you are not they're not forbidden, and there are places in the service where you might insert them, but they're not a big part 
of Judaism because we tend to think that, you know, there was a covenant made and, and it was made with a certain group of people and, and their ancestors. And then history is going to unspool. And, you know, that's that's kind of the way it is. So is, is that true definitely, across, across all traditions? I mean, say, you know, some extremely um, <laughs> observant Orthodox group, would they also say that? Uh, which part of it? The intervention, I guess, something like that, answer to specific prayer. Um, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm look, there, there are Jews who say every, there, for every claim you want to make, there's a Jew who will make it right. We don't have a Pope. We don't have a single normative tradition. We have hundreds of them. So, um, uh, you know, you'll, there are certainly Jews who I'm sure believe deeply in a kind of intercessionist prayer, but I will say having spent time in circles range of every kind of observance, you know, from ultra Orthodox all the way to deeply secular that, you know, it would be a very un-Jewish thing, for example, to, um, I mean, the only, the only prayers you'll tend to ask for will be for the health of particular people. So there is a moment in the service when, uh, you know, when you, you say the, the prayer for, you know, Rafu Shlema, the prayer for wellness and heal, healing, and you would insert the names of particular people who might be ailing or something. But I, I think that's more, that's more sort of almost symbolic. Um, it, it's sort of assertive, like we, these are the people I have in mind when I say it. You would never do what Christians do where you say, like, let's get a thousand people together to all pray for this particular event to come past or for this person's healing. What's funny about that when evangelicals do that is they, the qualifier, just. So I'm thinking if you're going to pray, the just prayers, like, God, if you could just make the weather better, if you could just make my marriage a little better, why throw that qualifier? Go for broke, go big or stay home. I mean, if you're going to selfishly, <laughs> you know, you know petition the deity i would le let it all hang out i mean well i want to ask you about something else it, it's very related i i am the pastor of a church in lancaster county pa that's ah. reformed in its <clears throat> theological orientation that's somewhat liturgical kind of like an episcopal church and we have now a number of families that have come from the amish to become part of our family um, interesting it is it's very interesting i i love them they're great you know people will stay and belong in their tribe, we'll say, in the same way, in some Christian traditions, this is very true. Roman Catholics, they don't tend to lose their faith. They tend to stay in the identity of being Roman Catholic, even if they, you know, have moments of doubt or something. Like they could go to an Ivy League right. school, write for Playboy for a while, live the dream, and go back to being an <laughs> observant Catholic, and she's like, hey, it's just yeah. kind of a yeah. thing. And, yeah. and, that's to, and, and I would say that's true of Judaism, too. Would you, would you agree with that? I would. Well, there, there's, a, there's an obvious similarity here, right, which is that neither one conditions justification or salvation or whatever it is you're shooting for on um, persistent belief, right? I mean, Judaism, there are kind of two things going here for you if you're a Jew. Um, one is that you were born into it, so you've got that, um, or or you've converted. At which point, your 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 family as well. Um, and you know the the other thing, we don't have a strong theology of the afterlife. I mean, there is a a sort of loose agglomeration of of teachings that say that there will be a resurrection of the dead in the world to come, but we don't know what the world to come looks like. And so, um, you know, there is a sense that when this world ends, there's a world to come, and that the righteous will be resurrected in it. Um, and that everyone else won't, you know, um, so, um, it's, it's very, you know, children of light and children of darkness. If you're one of the children of light, you, you make it, but, um, but that basic, we don't know what gets you there. It's not like if you die holding your rosary, you get there, right? So 
it's it's really about leading a good life and atoning with people you've wronged and and you know the more observant would say keeping Jewish commandments but you know it's not like they can tell you which ones are the most important if you want to get the afterlife so we it's not entirely clear what you're supposed to do um, to to get the brass ring right and in Catholicism. Um, it is very clear, but it doesn't have to do with belief. It has to do with, with sacraments. So, you know, if you die confessed and get your get last rites, extreme unction, and are holding your rosary, and I mean, you can pretty well, you're going to heaven. Um, in evangelicalism, I mean, it's, it's right, it's faith it's alone. So, belief alone, right? Yeah, There's, so it's, it's almost yeah, fused. I mean, it's, so, so what you're saying, like in Judaism, it sounds like um, belief and belonging aren't that closely connected, but whereas it... Oh, they're completely unconnected. For evangelicals, like, it's the are, same thing. It's the same thing, right. Right. I mean, every Orthodox, you know, take your most ultra-Orthodox synagogue. At any given moment, if there are 100 men in there, a, a couple dozen of them don't believe in God or they don't believe in God that day. There's no problem for that. I mean, there, there's, there's really no problem. Um, the point is you keep doing the actions. You keep showing up to pray. Um, you, you, keep, you, you, know, you keep kosher. You do what you're supposed to do and, uh, and, and treat people well and you're righteous. So um, that's fine. I mean, belief is, is one among many things that you ought to do. So that means if you pass through long periods of, of attenuated or, or non-belief, that's okay. We don't, we don't get hung up on that. I mean, there are certainly people who want to bring you back and help restore your belief, and, uh, but we don't, you're not out of communion or out of you know, fellowship in any, in any way, shape, or form. I don't believe there's anybody who's who's a God-fearer every day. I talk to evangelicals and say, I never lose my faith. And I think, I just don't believe you. And I think that, that you know, if you're going to be a, a born-again Christian for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years, some, there are days when you don't believe. And I think that must be terrifying because on those days, you worry about your salvation. That, that dynamic doesn't exist in Judaism. Yeah, that's the point we were talking about earlier. Like, I, anytime you absolutize a religious psychology, I think you're going to alienate a lot of people. Like, an inclusive understanding of religious psychology, I think it's just more humane. Um, thanks for, for your time with us. We're just two concluding questions. First. Oh, sure. I, I got time. First, um, in your biopic, like who plays you? <laughs> I mean, I keep getting told that Daniel Radcliffe, uh, adult Daniel Radcliffe in like movies six and seven of Harry Potter looks like me. I mean, I have people come up to me on the street and tell me that. So it must be true. I've only read the first Harry Potter book and only once I've seen one of the movies once. So this is, you know. I used to hope it would be Matthew Broderick, but um, probably better to have a younger person play me because he, he can probably more successfully play me as a young man and an old man. So I hope they sign him up. And Kieran Knightley is going to play my wife. And it would be Natalie Portman, I think, for the wife. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. But well, again, no, don't get me wrong. I would love to have Natalie Portman in, play my wife or any role in my life. But as it that's happens, your exception, I think my wife right? looks, You said that on the Unorthodox. Like, that's your Absolutely. My wife gets, gets a tool go on day, the New Yorker medical writer for one night, which tells you what a nerd she is. And I get Natalie Portman. For my but wife, assuming it would be Seth Meyers, which makes me feel and, bad. And for you? And for you? Ah, I don't, I, I haven't thought, I, I don't think, I haven't thought about it. It'd be a lot. Yeah. I'll get back. Yeah. To it doesn't work. You have to, I feel like it's better if you have one. If it's, uh, otherwise you're just pure <laughs> out. Like I'm. So, it, uh, so yeah, but but my wife looks more like Kira Knightley than she does like Natalie Portman. So say. on your podcast, you ask the Gentile of the week. Look, you've got a panel of expert Jews. Yeah, what ask do you want to know about anything. Jews? Like you had yeah. two uh, Protestants, a broadly evangelical one that's yeah. socially conservative, one that's probably socially more socially liberal. 
So is there anything you want to ask us? This is your moment. I mean, that's a great question. You know, I, obviously, as a journalist, I talk to evangelicals often. So I've, I've had a lot of my questions answered. I mean, I suppose what I would ask you is when um, what I always want to know from evangelicals is like, what do you what do you think of Jews? I like Jews. <laughs> I mean, my, I mean, my, my friends that are Jewish are. Well, it, this is what's interesting. Uh, like, how do you think we're like, what do you think? I mean, I, I don't really know how people, I have no idea what it would be like to be anything else. And I have no idea how I would, like, if I were like some sort of Episcopalian, would I look at Jews and think of them the way that I current, that I think of the Amish as just this other, or like, I don't know how I'd perceive yeah, them. Yeah, and I'm curious, I, you know, like, how other are we? You know, it's interesting. Um, when my wife and I, when we listen to your podcast, there are times we're like, you know, maybe we could be Jews. I mean, it's like, <laughs> there are times I think like, and I'm one of those people that's like sunny eyed disposition, kind of like yourself uh, with a dark inner soul. But but generally uh, and faith, I was I wasn't raised in the church. I kind of had an evangelical led me to Christ. Mm. And I Nietzsche is one that it's my favorite philosopher because he's the one that gets me to see the world differently. And I my mm-hmm. wife and I feel that way when we listen to your podcast, like the way you describe the world through Jewish eyes is incredibly compelling. Uh, and it, I mean, I, I mean, I think there's a reason why people don't worship Zeus and Odin anymore. And yet people are still <laughs> Buddhists and Christians. It's because right. Ju- Judaism, it's, it's capacity to reinvent itself like any great tradition and make sense of the complex where mm-hmm. we live in. I, so I, I look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think, well, I used to worship Odin before I became a Christian. So <laughs> I'm not sure what you're talking about. <laughs> he still you know, has Mark, a hammer. Mark, like I have, so I have a different situation. I grew up in northern Mississippi, if there is a northern part of Mississippi. Uh-huh. And uh, I knew no Jews. I mean, I, I literally had no contact. I learned anything about Judaism just from, in my adult life, from reading, you know, the Torah, from, you know, yeah. This sort of thing. So I have just no personal contact at all. I really don't. In fact, a few years ago, uh, we have a, a sister church in Brooklyn, and the pastor there, Ron Weinbaum, was an uh-huh. Orthodox Jew, bar mitzvahed, and became a Christian at some point later in his life. And we went to this very Orthodox area of Brooklyn, and we stayed with a, with a family. It was great. We had a great time with them. But we're driving great. down the road. And he's like, yeah, you know, the Orthodox Jewish women are wearing wigs. And so my, I have three uh-huh. daughters. And so they're like, is that a wig? Is that a wig? Uh-huh. Is that a wig? So we've just, I've just been sort of unable to have personal contact, you know, for most of my life with anyone that's Jewish, which I feel like is a, is, is a loss. It's a loss. But uh, that's my background. So, and you don't live in an area where, there, where you come into contact with a lot L- of Jews Lancaster now. County, not, uh, not, so not, many, a, yeah. not big. Yeah. Uh, but I did study, I, I mean, studied. Hebrew with a uh, reform rabbi down in Fort Myers, Florida. Yeah. And uh, I really, really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed getting to know him and just understanding uh, a bit more. But I didn't have I didn't have any contact except pretty much for that. That was about the only contact. The funny thing about that was when I called him, there was a Messianic Jewish congregation across from my house that were meeting in a Baptist church. I thought I was contacting that rabbi. Uh, and I'm talking to uh, him on the phone for a few minutes, trying to set up a meeting. And by the end of it, I realized, oh, I'm actually not talking to. Right. <laughs> oops, <laughs> oops. oops. And I kept saying, oops. now, pastor, are you so-and-so? And he's like, rabbi. And I'm like, and your church, 
synagogue. And then I realized, oh no, I'm, and when he told me the address, I'm like, I'm, t- I'm going to a reform rabbi. That, that I thought yeah, you got the real, I got the real thing. You got the real thing. I was, you got the, the real best. thing. It was hilarious. But um, I had a great relationship with him. I really enjoyed the, it. Yeah. Hey, wait, I have a, I have a question, but it's for, now Greg is the, is the more socially conservative. Leader, Correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. So I actually do have a question. So I will tell you, let's just, I'll just posit this. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right about this. That anyone who came to read the New Testament kind of not knowing much, if, if what they did, let, and let's say they didn't now, it's a little tricky if they get to Paul's letters and stuff, but certainly if they're reading Jesus, he really is a red letter Christian. I mean, he really is all about giving your money away. And, you know, I mean, this is stuff I've read a lot, right? It's my job. I mean, he really seems like a bit of a socialist. Now, I don't, I don't mean that, that that would necessarily map on today's, onto today's Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Like I'm not. I'm not that naive, but I would think that anyone who is just marinating in the New Testament all the time really would think like, yeah, if we could, if, if there are countries that have kind of solved homelessness with high taxes, Jesus would be into that. And it is, it is mystifying to me. I'm not saying that you couldn't argue it the other way, but it is mystifying to me that there isn't a strong 30, 40, 50% of conservative evangelicals, of real scripture-based Christians, let's say, who are just like an obvious, obvious. I mean, why is that not so, it's so intuitive. If Then I really, I have no dog in this hunt, right? Like I, I'm just telling you, if you just come to it without the ecclesial sort of aftermath, you would say like, Jesus wasn't interested in keeping your own money and preserving your own money, right? That was of no, he was telling people to give everything away. It was of no interest to him. And what he was really interested in was helping the poor. Why wouldn't you be, why wouldn't there be jaunts over to Denmark saying, okay, you're not a perfect country, but you live longer and you have lower infant mortality. What on earth can you teach us? couple of different answers come to mind. Number one would be, we read not only Jesus' words, but the words of the Torah. And and there is a distinction between government and church and between the idea of real charity, which we're all called to do, and government intervention, which is, at least in my reckoning in this country, very poorly done. (laughs) I mean, hey, let's fix this. Let's give it to the government. That just doesn't work. Uh, very few things are, seem to work from a federal, you know, federal point. Well, of view. But let me ask you this: What if it did? What if it did? Wouldn't that thrill you? See, what I always—this is where I get with evangelicals. I always say, "Well, let's find examples that do work, and let's throw more money at them and make them work." Because let's look at countries that really have achieved things with government intervention and consider those. The thing is, you always seem to be looking for all the reasons that couldn't possibly be true. But I would think you'd be dying for examples where it would be true. Well, it would be great if it were true. If I mean, if it worked, that would be good. I think I would I would be open. I'm not sure that all my conservative friends would be open to this. I mean, but I would be open there, it is unco- to, to say that. It is unquestionably the case that some of the countries with socialized medicine have longer life expectancies, lower infant mortality, and spend less per person. It's, it's just that's just true. That doesn't mean that those systems could be mapped immediately onto the U.S. without tinkering. But you'd think at least that evangelicals would want to do fact-finding missions to say, well, how can we work with that? Yeah, I think it, it has to do, you know, from a reformational kind of point of view. Um, we think about, you know, like Calvin, for example, would be a theologian that I would like a lot of, the, of his ideas. He would say, you know, we need a godly commonwealth. Uh, the idea that you do need, but you need a separation of of powers, if you will. You need a separation of the church from the state. Um, that would be an idea that I'd go with. I think for many Protestant evangelicals, it's that background of having that separation. That's really a key, key idea because there's so much corruption and it's the whole power corrupts and absolute power 
corrupts absolutely problem of, uh, you know, just having a deep suspicion of whether especially federal government or governments in general. Well, why especially them. federal? Why especially? Well, federal? again, uh, I'm a person that, that grew up in the South. My reading of, of history is that there was something good about having a group of states that had their own laws. You know, there could be a state church, for example, even. There was a state church before, you know, before um, the Civil War, for example. Uh, well, no, 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 no Massachusetts just, and Connecticut, Massachusetts, Connecticut had established right. churches until 1818 and 1833. Yeah, Unquestionably, exactly, right? right? And I'm just saying that once you localize things, then you can have more trust. The, the larger and the more of a uh, kind of behemoth it becomes, I think that's where... But is that a scriptural value? I yeah, mean, that's... In other words, if I gave you facts, if I gave you facts that said, at a larger scale than you're comfortable with, we could actually save more lives and reduce infant mortality, is there a scriptural problem with you saying, great, tell me those facts, I want to know? Yes, uh, no, I don't think so. I, no, I don't think so. I've, I've already admitted. I said, hey, look, if you can make it happen, make it happen. That will be, that'll be great. The, so aren't you aware that there are countries making it happen? I am. Um, I mean, is, is that is, – is, I mean, do you feel like every one of the countries that the people on the left say has ha achieved better, say, medicine or, or solved their homelessness problem better – through federal intervention, are we are are they all wrong about every single one of those cases? Just as a matter of, you've investigated them and you found that they're all wrong. I, and if you have a I thousand am. Southern Baptists training to convert Jews, couldn't we take fifty of them, just fifty off the top, and send them over to, to Western Europe to sure. do a little fact finding, like Mark's saying? Like, well, yeah, uh, Mark, I, I'm ignorant of this of of that information. Like, I haven't studied that. Um, I haven't I haven't done the research, but I'll certainly take. You know, take your point and try to try right. to figure that. But see, here's the thing: is like almost every conservative evangelical I know is ignorant of that point, right? Like every Canadian I know, even conservatives, even people who are Tories in Canada, they say, "Well, of course, Canada has better health care. I mean, there are problems with it, but of course, you want a single payer nationalized system because then you're not afraid you're going to go broke every time you you know break an arm, right? I mean, they take it for granted, right? And yet none of their conservative evangelical friends down here say, let's go to Toronto and find out. They will go to Uganda to try to convert someone, <laughs> but they're utterly uninterested in. So it's, it's, it really strikes me that it's that essentially, I mean, I'll be perfectly blunt here. You've become Republicans, not Christians. If you were proceeding, yeah, not you, not, not all, not all, right, right? I'm talking about a subset that we could probably delineate in ways that we understand, right? But if, you, if it would really proceed from Christianity and just didn't have anything to do with contemporary conservative politics, you'd be doing all sorts of other things to figure out how do we save more lives? How do we reduce poverty? We, there'd be a tremendous interest in international solutions. And I think what's happened is the fear that those other countries are somehow anti-Christian, because we know that in many ways they're more likely, they're more atheistic countries, they're more socialist, et cetera, has made you willing to sacrifice the lives you could be saving by adopting their policies. Because you'd rather, you'd rather let babies die than look more like Sweden. Well, well you're being but, circumspect. Could you I mean, be a little more blunt? Like, yes. just speak, speak with some more. Clarity. All right, you're you're going after me. Oh, it's okay. All right, all right. Uh, well, in the first place, I don't think that I think the tr the trouble has been from a from a conservative mindset, and I'm I'm not I'm a pretty much a political guy in in most ways. But from a conservative mindset, as, a, as am I, by the way, I'm just I'm just playing. Yeah, with you, but as yeah, I, but I think I think the trouble is when you hand something over to a big government, does it get done well or not? And, you know, I think about the example of like the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So I don't know. This is back in the 70s. Somebody did an analysis where they said, 
Well, how much does it cost to run the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Well, it costs, we'll say, $10 million a year. Well, if you just cut that money up and send everybody a check, every, you know, American, indigenous, you know, Indian would get whatever, you know, $100,000 a piece. I say this for myself, but I would say in representing the conservative side of things, there's a deep suspicion about that. Now, maybe it's unjustified in some cases. I, I can admit that. I'd certainly, you know, like like to know, and I'm not uh, able to say. And one of the things well, I appreciate you know, about you as a person no. and a pastor, too, like you're not a tribal guy. Like you hang out with people outside. Your, it's one of the things I love Except about. Except for Jews, which I don't know any of. Them. Exactly. But he would, if there were Jews in Lancaster, I'll tell you. He would bring them to the There are some. I just haven't found uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and that's one of the things we appreciate so much about your podcast, Mark. I mean, you're a, you're a guy that um, – I feel like one of the biggest idols. That's something both of our traditions could agree on, right? That when you make something God that shouldn't be, things go awry. And I feel like one of the idols of our culture totally. is tribalism. Like people – Totally. Uh, and so anytime there's a non-tribal voice, which Greg's church is. I mean, and Greg is as a person, and so are you, and I'm thankful for that. All of the things that you would critique the Republican Party for, I I think I probably would agree with your critique. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have much in the way of uh, affection for him. I, I wish for mm. something new, basically. Mark, have you read American Grace um, by Putnam? You know, it's an awfully big book. I've looked, I've, I have it on my shelf. Yeah, I mean, I, cause his argument there, which I think is really compelling and interesting, like he says that basically in 1950, church attendance for whites was not a helpful predictor for how you vote. Like in 1950, if you went to church right. three to four times a month, you were just as likely to vote for Eisenhower as if you were an atheist. Right. But now for whites, it's the, one of the most reliable predictors. I mean, my wife and I are like anomalies. Right. Um, and how we vote, like generally, but like I think that is that shift has been in the last like fifty or sixty years. Well, I'll just conclude by saying I go to synagogue enough that I should be pulling the percentages back. I vote liberal. I'm in synagogue all the freaking time, so <laughs> I'm doing my I'm doing my bit to return us to Eisenhower era America. Me too. Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time. This yeah, has been a you. lot of fun. Thank you so much. Mark. Thank you really, so much. Yeah. Thank you. We'll do it again. You Thanks again for listening to this special edition of The Mockingcast. If you like what you heard, please drop by iTunes and give us a rating and a review. And as usual, you can find all of our content on our website, mbird.com. And don't forget to check out Mark Oppenheimer's podcast, Unorthodox, which you can find in iTunes or at tabletmag.com. Thanks again. <laughs>